0: on the evening of september 2nd 1814 the british warship hms sophie plowed across the gulf of mexico from the deck captain nicholas lockyer gazed over the water toward his destination the mouth of the mississippi river
1: his ship was heading for one particular treacherous spot on the delta barataria bay the headquarters of the notorious pirate Jean Lafitte.
0: Lafitte lorded over a veritable army of criminals. His network included over a thousand privateers and smugglers. And that was exactly why Lockyer wanted to meet Lafitte. Recruitment.
1: For two years, Britain and the United States had been at war. And the British knew they could use men with superior knowledge of the dizzying bayou.
0: When Lockyer arrived on shore, he was met by a group of armed, rough-looking smugglers. But soon, the crowd parted, and a tall, brown-haired man dressed in a fine jacket emerged. He looked like any other member of New Orleans' high society. Lockyer was shocked when the man smiled and announced that he was Jean Lafitte.
1: Lockyer promptly handed Lafitte a package. Inside the package were four documents requesting Lafitte and his forces join the British in taking New Orleans. One was a letter from Captain Nicholas Lockyer that offered a hefty bribe to sweeten the deal. If Lafitte joined their efforts, Lafitte would be made an army captain and would be given lots of land.
0: Lafitte was intrigued, but he asked Lockyer for some time to consider the proposal. Perhaps two weeks would be enough?
1: With a smile, Lafitte led the British captain back to his boat. Lockyer was confident he'd won over the Pirate King.
0: He didn't realize he'd been played. Captain Jean Lafitte had no intention of helping the British. He had his own plan to rule New Orleans, even if it meant getting caught in the crossfire of an international war.
1: Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Richard.
0: And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we've been looking at the unique democratic dictatorships that flourished during the golden age of piracy.
1: Last week, we began our dive into the legendary tale of Pirate King Jean Lafitte. After a mysterious upbringing, Lafitte emerged as the premier smuggler in New Orleans in the early
0: 1800s. This week, we'll follow Lafitte into battle and investigate the collapse of his New Orleans network and his eventual disappearance. We'll also explore Lafitte's lasting impact on New Orleans and his legacy as America's last pirate king.
1: We'll have all that and more coming up When war broke out between Great Britain and the United States in 1812, known fittingly as the War of 1812, Jean Lafitte and his men were practically running New Orleans, hobnobbing with the region's elite. Along with his older brother Pierre, Lafitte had founded an autonomous pirate colony and built a privateering fleet by the time he was just 30 years old.
0: Of course, not everyone was pleased by their success. Louisiana's governor, an appointee from Virginia named William Claiborne, was tired of the smugglers' blatant disregard for authority. But hunting down Barataria's leader had been futile. Jean Lafitte was too beloved by the people.
1: After all, he was pumping money into the local economy and providing valuable goods to a city much of the country still saw as a backwater.
0: But as war between America and Britain became imminent, Nobody suspected this so-called backwater would eventually become the site of one of the most critical battles of the entire conflict, and Lafitte would be right in the middle of it.
1: For the first year or so of the war, though, the fight stayed along the eastern coast. New Orleans was hundreds of miles from the fight, which was fantastic news for Jean Lafitte. The U.S. Navy was distracted elsewhere, while in Barataria, there were plenty of opportunities for profit.
0: Thanks to the war, business boomed for Lafitte smugglers. In his book, Patriotic Fire, author Winston Groom explains that the Baratarians became increasingly outrageous. They posted flyers in broad daylight on buildings throughout New Orleans, announcing their booty auctions held in the swamp. These were attended by the city's most prominent men, who bought up everything from slaves to pig iron, as well as dresses and jewelry for their wives.
1: The brazen smuggling operation enraged Governor William C.C. Claiborne, but the Navy presence in New Orleans wasn't equipped to fight the pirates. It was nearly impossible for the authorities to do anything, especially when the local population supported the pirates.
0: This support also revealed a dark truth about the current political situation. If Britain was looking to invade its former colonies, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana would be an enticing spot to do it. The population was decidedly anti-American, and there was nothing but a weak naval defense to keep out invaders.
1: Claiborne was the wrong person to navigate this difficult situation. He was a Virginian native, and he didn't even speak French, the predominant language in the region. And despite his requests, the federal government refused to send him any help.
0: In fact, not long after Claiborne's request for help, the U.S. government made things even worse. President Madison provided letters of marque to a half dozen Gulf Coast privateers who promptly continued doing business with Lafitte, now with the official approval of the U.S. government.
1: Of course, these letters of marque angered Claiborne further, and Lafitte was practically laughing at each of the governor's attempts to thwart him.
0: In November, 1813, An enraged Claiborne issued an edict condemning the smugglers and offering a $500 reward for Lafitte's capture. The edict was posted all over New Orleans, but within a week, a new flyer appeared around the city.
1: It was a reward poster signed by Lafitte himself offering $5,000 for the capture of Governor
0: Claiborne. Naturally, Claiborne was insulted. He begged President Madison for help in capturing the Pirate King.
1: Madison finally acquiesced and had Navy Commodore Daniel T. Patterson and Army Colonel George Ross figure it out.
0: However, Madison's move possibly had more to do with bolstering the city's defenses than appeasing Claiborne. He knew that New Orleans was essentially undefended from a possible British attack. Besides the shoddy Navy gunboats, there were not many US soldiers in the area and limited supplies.
1: After witnessing their efforts on the East Coast, Madison knew that a British invasion force could be expected to have at least 20,000 soldiers with fully supplied warships behind them.
0: By the summer of 1814, Madison's worries were proven correct. A British force was on its way to Louisiana.
1: And Jean Lafitte was about to find himself in the crossfire.
0: On September 3, 1814, the British approached Lafitte about helping invade New Orleans. Lafitte knew well enough to listen and weigh his options carefully. His business was running beautifully. The wartime market meant that he was rich, powerful, and practically a celebrity among the merchant class in the city.
1: But Lafitte realized that now his success could be a liability. If the British were bringing the war to his wharf, Lafitte would inevitably need to choose a
0: side. Specifically, the winning side. Whoever had control of New Orleans would influence the laws and market, and thus Lafitte's ability to do business from Barataria.
1: For all of Governor Claiborne's blustering, Lafitte's kingdom was still doing well despite the American government. Plus, the Americans had already shown a willingness to work with the pirates. As the old adage suggested, It was better to keep the devilish governor he knew, than join forces with an unknown enemy.
0: The next day after the British colonel met with him, Lafitte wrote to his friend Jean Blanc, who then delivered the message to Lafitte's old adversary, Governor Claiborne. In his letter, Lafitte revealed the British plot and their attempted bribe, and then offered his services to the Americans.
1: All he asked in return was a pardon for his brother Pierre, who was now sitting in jail. Lafitte even went so far as to admit to his crimes, writing, I may have evaded the payment of duties to the Custom House, but I have never ceased to be a good citizen.
0: But Lafitte didn't put all his eggs in one basket. If his offer was rejected, he would find himself on the wrong end of both U.S. and British cannons. As he sent off the letter with a courier, He also began to pack his bags.
1: Unfortunately, Lafitte was right to run. Claiborne was indeed skeptical. After receiving the letter, the governor met with a board of officers to discuss the matter. Most of the men on the board, which included Ross and Patterson, did not find Lafitte's documents genuine and wanted to move quickly to end Lafitte's reign over the bayou.
0: Ross and Patterson in particular wanted to send a military expedition to Barataria to wipe out Lafitte once and for all. Ross even reached out to General Andrew Jackson, commander of the U.S. Armed Forces in the region, stating his intention to see this through.
1: A few days later, on September 16th, A U.S. warship and six gunboats approached Barataria Bay and opened fire.
0: After pummeling the bay with cannons, the army regiments moved in and found only a fraction of the smugglers they'd expected. At the first sound of a cannon shot, most of the privateer captains had boarded their boats and fled into the swamps.
1: Patterson and Ross still managed to capture about 80 smugglers, including one of Lafitte's closest confidants, a captain named Dominique Yu. But much to their chagrin, Lafitte himself was nowhere to be found.
0: The army seized the goods they found, including over a dozen ships, and burned the rest, including the docks and the ramshackle homes of the privateers.
1: Barataria was in flames, and Lafitte and his brother were hiding in the swamps. The Lafitte smuggling empire was no more.
0: But Lafitte himself was far from done. Little did the US military know, he had hidden caches of weapons scattered throughout the bayou. And this attack was enough to make Lafitte go to war.
1: Coming up, Jean Lafitte decides between patriotism and revenge.
2: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now back to the story.
1: In September 1814, the US military laid waste to Jean Lafitte's smuggling headquarters in Barataria Bay. Commodore Daniel T. Patterson and Army Colonel George Ross believed they had finally put a significant dent in Gulf Coast piracy. After all, the gentleman pirate himself was hiding in the swamps.
0: Unfortunately, their timing was terrible. As Lafitte had tried to warn them in his letter, the British were preparing an invasion of Louisiana. The ammunition and manpower the Americans had expended to fight the pirates had left them weakened against the coming British attack.
1: It was a foolish move. By November, more than 50 British ships were assembled off the coast of Jamaica for the invasion. This included a massive 80-gun flagship and dozens of smaller warships.
0: With only a small naval force and a few thousand sailors and soldiers, the Americans were vastly outnumbered and outgunned.
1: The first skirmish of the Battle of New Orleans erupted on December 14th. The five U.S. Navy gunboats stationed on Lake Bourne were quickly overrun by British vessels. The British captured five U.S. vessels and their crews, losing fewer than 20 men in the process. It was a disturbing sign of what was to come.
0: Jackson couldn't afford to lose any more boats or men. To make matters worse, after a survey of New Orleans defenses, Jackson discovered a critical problem. He had plenty of guns, but was lacking in bullets. There was only one way around this problem.
1: Jean Lafitte had plenty of ammunition hidden away in the swamps and plenty of loyal men still at his command throughout the area. It was now undeniable that the U.S. needed Lafitte's help.
0: Jackson sent a message to Lafitte's hideout requesting a meeting with the Pirate King. Lafitte had already been burned once, so he refused to reveal himself without some conditions being met.
1: After a roundabout negotiation, he secured the release of his men who'd been captured and the cancellation of his arrest warrant.
0: Then, sometime around December 18th, Lafitte emerged from the Swamplands. He allegedly headed directly for General Jackson's headquarters in New Orleans.
1: The General was surprised by the gentleman visitor who came to greet him. After seeing the rough men captured at Barataria, Jackson believed their leader would be the worst of the lot. Instead, Lafitte greeted him with genteel manners, dressed in his usual fine fashion.
0: Initial judgments aside, the two men got down to business quickly. Lafitte offered his men and weapons to the American war effort. In exchange, he wanted pardons for himself and his brother. Jackson accepted.
1: Immediately following their meeting, the captured baritarians were freed and joined the rest of their brethren. Under the command of Captain Dominique Yu and a man by the name of Renato Bellucci, the former smugglers formed two artillery regiments.
0: Additionally, other Baratarians were dispatched to the same warship that had led the attack on Barataria. In a twist of wartime fate, Lafitte's pirates ended up serving alongside the same sailors who had hunted them a few months before.
1: Meanwhile, Lafitte was appointed an advisor to Jackson, and it didn't take long for him to prove his worth.
0: Just a few days later, Lafitte was walking along the fortifications outside the city. Jackson had ordered the levees broken below the city, creating a floodplain that the British forces would have to cross. Just above the breach, a long wall and parapet were built in an unbroken half-mile-long barricade.
1: But on his walk, Lafitte noticed that the fortifications simply ended where they reached the often impassable swamps. He realized that if the British ever found their way through the swamps, however unlikely that was, They could flank the ends of the barricade and surround the city's defenses.
0: Lafitte knew to expect the unexpected. No matter the odds, the British could, and probably would, find a way in. He told Jackson about the flawed rampart design, and the walls were extended into the swamp, and just in the nick of time.
1: On the morning of December 27th, the British opened fire on the U.S. warship Carolina, positioned on the river south of the city. The blistering cannon fire sparked off the powder inside the Carolina, and the entire vessel exploded.
0: Meanwhile, according to some accounts, Lafitte was along the rampart, watching the battle as the British tried to advance over the flooded swampland. His men, headed by Dominique and Beluche, were commanding the American's largest cannons, two massive 24-pounders.
1: Their aim was exceptional. Lafitte's cannoneers successfully held back the British advance for over a day and a half.
0: The fight lasted through December 28th, when the British withdrew to a nearby sugar plantation.
1: But the battle was far from over. Just a few days later on New Year's Day, the British mounted another larger attack on the city.
0: Throughout the battle, the Barretarians stayed on the front lines under the command of Dominique and Beluche. The British had learned their lesson the first time around, and when they opened fire just after 10 a.m., they aimed specifically for the Baratarian cannons.
1: But their accuracy was no match for the pirates' experienced gunnery. After just over 90 minutes, two-thirds of the British artillery had been put out of action, and the American artillery showed no signs of stopping.
0: This was largely thanks to Lafitte, Jackson was astonished at the sheer amount of ammunition the crafty pirate king had managed to sock away in the swamps. Lafitte seemed to always have another secret cache of supplies to dig up.
1: However, the British still had thousands more men than Jackson did, even with the added help of the pirates. Before they gave up, they decided to make one last full-on assault on New Orleans.
0: On the morning of January 8th, The British attempted to cross the flooded battlefield and reach the barricade. As the pirates kept firing their cannons, the smoke became so thick that nobody could see the battlefield to take aim.
1: Jackson ordered the smugglers to hold their fire to allow the smoke to clear. As it did, he spotted Captain Dominique Yu standing by his massive cannon, grinning. Jackson said, If I were ordered to storm the gates of hell with Captain Dominique as my lieutenant, I would have no misgivings of the result.
0: After the smoke cleared enough to see the battlefield, one of Jackson's riflemen said, It looked at first glance like a sea of blood. It was not blood itself, but the red coats of the British. The field was entirely covered in prostrate bodies.
1: Lafitte emerged from the swamp with another cache of supplies just as the battle ended. When he surveyed the damage, he could scarcely believe how well the American defense had done. All three British commanders were dead, as well as most of their officers. 500 Redcoats had surrendered.
0: The battle for New Orleans was over, but there was no time to savor the victory. Lafitte was ready to get back to business.
1: A month after the battle on February 16, 1815, President Madison pardoned Lafitte, Pierre, and all of the other smugglers who had fought to defend New Orleans. Even Governor Claiborne had little to say once Lafitte became a war hero. It was an ironic turn of fate for the men once hunted by both the state and federal governments.
0: However, the battle left Lafitte worse off than before. He'd used up most of his supplies in the fight, and the rest of his seized property was still in the hands of the U.S. officers who'd led the raid on Barataria the summer before. They'd captured over a dozen fully armed ships when they took Barataria, which was a substantial investment for Lafitte.
1: With the pardon in hand, the Lafitte brothers assumed they would have their ships and supplies returned to them. Unfortunately, they were wrong.
0: The officers claimed the pirated goods from Barataria were legally theirs, according to the same privateering laws the Lafitte's had used to their advantage.
1: The brothers tried to play the game on their terms and sued to have their vessels and goods returned to them. But while the case was tied up in the courts, the officers simply began to auction off the seized ships and goods.
0: As soon as the auctions were announced, Pierre and Jean gave up on the legal system and went a different route.
1: With all the money the Lafitte brothers were able to muster up, Pierre was able to purchase a privateer ship known as the Presidente.
0: Pierre was then able to secure additional ships for their fleet by serving as a spy for Spain. Spain wanted to recover territory in America that they had lost, and was willing to pay Pierre and Jean for espionage.
1: Though Jean and Pierre were pardoned for their previous crimes, the two got back to their old habits. Jean soon went after Spanish vessels in the Caribbean with letters of marque from Cartagena, a fledgling republic in modern-day Colombia.
0: Lafitte had come full circle, back to where he started his career, seizing cargo and enslaved men and women to be sold by his brother Pierre in New Orleans. Now, all he had to do was rebuild his smuggling empire.
1: Coming up, Lafitte searches for new horizons and finally meets a force he can't overcome, Mother Nature. Now,
0: back to the story.
1: By mid-1817, Captain Jean Lafitte was itching for a new enterprise. It had been two years since the Battle of New Orleans, and he was stuck in a tedious repetition of privateering and smuggling. Thanks to the complicated politics of the era, This meant Lafitte worked for and against a number of the governments with interests around the Gulf.
0: But he missed running his own form of government. Barataria had been an empire beholden to no single nation. As much as Lafitte liked making money, he was unfulfilled by the prospect of business as usual. His entrepreneurial spirit needed a new outlet.
1: Luckily, his brother Pierre had just the idea. The brothers needed a new base Around this time, still acting as spies for Spain, Pierre and Jean were tasked with cozying up to Mexican revolutionaries and gathering any useful information from them. Little did Spain know that the Lafites had their own agenda.
0: The revolutionaries were operating out of Galveston, a Spanish-owned island just off the Texas coast. However, the island was essentially autonomous, as Spain had its hands full with the revolution in Mexico. There was open land, safe harbor, and best of all, no customs or naval authorities to deal with. It was the perfect home base for a new smuggling empire. So with Pierre's help, Jean made his move.
1: On March 30th, 1817, the 35-year-old smuggler landed at Galveston ready to start a fresh pirate colony. Word spread quickly through the smugglers still in and around New Orleans, and within a few months, over 300 men were operating out of Galveston.
0: Lafitte aimed to use Galveston as his new permanent base, even going so far as to build a magnificent home on the island. The stone structure was like an anchor for the pirate community around it, much like the governor's mansions of Nassau and Port Royal a century before.
1: And Lafitte believed himself to be every bit as powerful as those governors. He began issuing his own letters of marque authorizing his privateers to take ships from any nation. He operated by a single principle, profit.
0: But Lafitte's new operation grew too big, too fast. barataria had taken years to grow, but Galveston became a pirate haven practically overnight, which drew the attention of the U.S. government.
1: While Spain technically owned Galveston and Texas, American shipping was being affected by the pirate colony. Lafitte's illicit goods were being sold up the Mississippi River, going as far north as St. Louis, Missouri. This made Galveston an American problem, and the recently elected President James Monroe was determined not to let the island become the next Barataria.
0: Galveston was on track to be even bigger and more autonomous than Barataria, a pirate colony that operated almost like a state independent governance, trading partners, and an armed force capable of defending the territory.
1: Unfortunately for Lafitte, there wasn't an armed force on Earth that could stand up to Mother Nature herself. And before Monroe could dispatch the Navy to Texas, nature intervened.
0: On September 12, 1818, a massive hurricane tore across the Gulf of Mexico and roared into Galveston. When the skies finally cleared the next day, everything in Galveston was gone.
1: Once again, Lafitte's burgeoning empire was set back to square one.
0: Over the next two years, Lafitte tried to rebuild. But scores of his men had drowned in the storm, and Galveston's infrastructure took months to clean up and restore.
1: The hurricane was only one of Lafitte's problems. By 1819, it was more dangerous and expensive than ever before to be a pirate in the Gulf. The cost of insurance on merchant ships had doubled over the course of Lafitte's career. Merchants were traveling armed to protect their cargo, and there were more independent pirate hunters working alongside the American and Spanish navies.
0: And sadly, Lafitte's name no longer carried the weight it once had. Over time, the glory of the Battle of New Orleans had been outweighed by the dark mark of his crimes. Monroe was a new president with new priorities, one of which was to finally bring law and order to the Gulf Coast, even if it meant turning on a former American war hero.
1: Lafitte had been around long enough to see himself become the villain. In 1821, he and his brother finally abandoned their business ventures and fled to Central America to retire and avoid authorities.
0: Sadly, by the end of the year, Pierre was dead. He succumbed to illness on November 9th along the Mexican coast. Meanwhile, Captain Jean Lafitte simply vanished.
1: Where he ended up is still a mystery to this day. Over the decades, rumors circulated about drowning, capture and execution,
0: or escape. The happiest version appears in Lafitte's alleged journal the one discovered in the mid-1900s. According to the journal, Lafitte retired to St. Louis, changed his name, got married, and died in 1854.
1: Sadly, this memoir has largely been debunked, but the imagery of the 72-year-old gentleman pirate retiring to the Midwest is enticing.
0: However, the most likely truth is that Captain Jean Lafitte went down fighting. According to historian William Davis, A little more than a year after Pierre's death, Lafitte also met his end.
1: At dawn on February 4, 1823, Lafitte was sailing off the coast of Honduras looking for prey. He was now the captain of a privateering vessel called the General Santander. About 40 miles off the coast, he spotted a pair of ships that turned tail as soon as they saw him. Assuming they were a merchant ship and escort, Lafitte gave chase.
0: Unfortunately, it was a decoy. As Lafitte guided his ship within firing range, both of the other vessels revealed that they were armed to the teeth. They weren't merchant ships, but pirate hunters. Eighteen
1: cannons opened up on Lafitte's ship, and one of them struck a fatal blow. A cannonball blasted apart the wooden deck and drove a huge splinter into Lafitte's torso.
0: Lafitte went down, but continued to shout orders and encouragement to his men. By the time they escaped, he was in a state of feverish delirium due to infection.
1: Sometime before the sun rose on February 5th, 1823, Captain Jean Lafitte died. The damaged ship was a few weeks from the nearest port. So his men buried him at sea somewhere in the gulf of honduras
0: the only announcement of his death came in a spanish newspaper a month later and its veracity remains disputed it's possible the entire story was fabricated over time but one thing is certain captain jean lafitte was never seen alive again
1: lafitte left behind an enigmatic legend with little hard evidence and many myths His influence over the Gulf Coast region lasts to this day, where he is seen as a Creole hero.
0: However, unlike other captains who inspired a new generation of pirates, Lafitte was the end of an era. As the United States Navy grew more powerful, piracy in the Gulf and Caribbean was largely eradicated.
1: The golden age of piracy was over. Though pirates may have thrived in other parts of the world, Captain Jean Lafitte was the last true Pirate King.
0: And yet men weren't the only pirates who dominated and disrupted trade. Though history often forgets them, there were plenty of women who sailed the Seven Seas and in the process became Pirate Queens.
1: Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week with the story of the two most notorious female pirates in history, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed.
0: You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Among the many sources we used, we found The Pirates Lafitte by William C. Davis, extremely helpful to our research.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.